재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Well, as I mentioned, today is the 97th anniversary of the March 1st movement against Japanese colonial rule. And to commemorate this day, we're going to try and uh, learn more about the plight of various people around the world that still do not have the privilege of self-determination, their own nation-state. And to help us understand this issue better, we're very pleased to have joining us from London School of Economics Law, uh, Department of Law, Dr. James Irving on the line. Hello. Hi, it's good to be here. Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Irving. Uh, First, how is the right to self-determination defined under the framework of international law, and how has it evolved over the years? Uh, That's actually a very good uh, first question. It takes us straight to the initial problem that one encounters when trying to get to grips with this topic. Self-determination is not neatly or tightly defined in any international document. Uh, That's not to say it's not mentioned. It's cited in the first article of the UN Charter. And a right to self-determination is stated in strong, even many would say very strong terms, in the first article of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Uh, And there are no more important founding documents of our modern international legal order than these. So so self-determination has a strong textual foundation in a formal sense. But we have to look to the history to understand what those words mean in practice. And that takes me to the second part of your question mm-hmm. about how the legal understanding of self-determination has, has evolved over the years. Uh, initially, after the First World War, a political, but at that stage not a legal principle of self-determination, was understood to support nationalist claims for statehood. Um, when self-determination became a part of international law after the Second World War, There was no appetite for supporting that approach again. Obviously, the Second World War uh, did not do great things for nationalism's public image. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the kind of self-determination that was championed as the law developed after the Second World War was was not nationalist. Legal self-determination was then over time applied and relates to your introduction to decolonization. In other words, it was applied in support of the independence of, of the European colonies Um, countries such as Nigeria, India, Indonesia, etc., gained their independence by virtue of the doctrine, the legal doctrine of self-determination. It was also applied at that time to some adjacent problems, including permanent sovereignty over natural resources and the foreign occupation of territory, which is referred to by lawyers rather rather strangely as as, uh, alien occupation, but there are no Martians involved. More recently, self-determination has been claimed very publicly by groups such as indigenous peoples and minorities around the world. Mm -hmm. Indigenous peoples tend to claim self-determination for self-government rather than secessionist claims or for independence. And I think it's fair to say that they have gained more recognition at the current time for those claims than have minorities. Minorities have often hoped to enlist self-determination in support for separate statehood. But these claims have, predictably enough, uh, been hotly disputed by affected states. And and this part of the law is really far from settled at the current time. And uh, skipping ahead, you mentioned how after World War II, uh, the image of uh, uh, ethnic nationalism certainly took a little bit of a beating in terms of its image. But do you believe today uh, these ideas still, there are some problems? Uh, It has been abused in some cases in terms of ethno-national interests and how it kind of ensues into violence? 
Sure. I mean, historically, again, there are great precedents. Um, the Nazis and Adolf Hitler obviously abused and used the political doctrine of national self-determination to try and support the wars that ultimately, or the annexations that ultimately led to the Second World War. Today, I mean, we tried after the Second World War not to, to resurrect that version of the doctrine when we brought it into international law. But uh, that having been said, you know, abuse is always possible and a good lawyer has to always be vigilant and keep an eye out for that kind of thing. It, it can occur, it can occur. States can abuse the doctrine and so can sub-state groups or, or others. So I think we, we do need to recognize that that's quite possible and be on guard against it. In your legal expertise, your opinion, uh, do you feel that there can be a more effective international arbitration body that can oversee and settle these matters as far as self-determination goes uh, in a way that could be deemed fair by most parties involved? Yeah, sure. That's a, that's a really great question. We, of course, already have the International Court of Justice, mm -hmm. sometimes called the World Court, which sits in The Hague, but its jurisdiction is limited. It can only hear cases between states or or when the, an organ of the UN chooses to bring one. And the whole point about a human right like self-determination is that it's held by, by other groups as well, by individuals possibly in addition. So um, there are other procedures. The Human Rights Committee could, could have played a role, but they've chosen uh, in, in some states, which are, which, which are parties to the, to the optional protocol on the international covenant, covenant and, civil, and political rights. However, they've um, interpreted... Uh, their role and their jurisdiction more narrowly. So, so that leaves open the question, yeah, there is a kind of a space there. Is that where we should extend our effort at the current time? My own feeling is it would be great to have a body that people could go to, but ultimately it's still going to be staffed by humans. And these mm. questions are still going to be very, very complex, difficult questions with, with people, large numbers of people often with, with complex um, conflicting interests and, and potentially rights as well. And so um, I'd probably put my emphasis a little bit more on developing some of the, some of the norms in this area, some of the principles and rules. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wouldn't think that an, an arbitral institution can solve all the problems. Could it make a, a valuable contribution? Yes. But the, the idea that a super judge is going to come along and find the perfect, perfect just answer that we'll, everyone will be happy with. I think is, um, is, is far-fetched. It's just it's not going to happen. Okay, very good point indeed. Now, we know that, I, I suppose for people who believe that not all secessionist or independence movements are created equal here in Korea, everyone, of course, feeling a sense of pride over this independence movement that ultimately led to Korea's independence from Japanese colonial rule. We have uh, places in uh, Quebec or Scotland or Catalonia. Do you feel that there is a general trend that uh, these uh, separatists or um, independence movements will gain more traction, more momentum in the years going forward? Well, sure. I think we have no reason to think otherwise. I mean, uh, people sometimes don't always have a lot of perspective on these issues, but the number of states in the world has approximately quadrupled since World War II. There's a, a kind of assumption which many of us carry around with us that borders will never move again. But the history of the world is actually a history of constant dynamism on mm. that front. Uh, we don't want to think about it because often the movement of borders in the past has been associated with the use of force, with war, with terrible right. destruction. But in my view, what we need to do is to face up to the reality that borders are, are movable and they will move in the future and states will be formed, they will continue to be formed. And what we need is to work much harder on developing rules and procedures to allow this to happen peacefully and in a, in a fair and negotiated fashion. So that's where I'd, I'd place my emphasis.
Yeah, certainly uh, not as uh, cut and dry an issue uh, as people may uh, be led to believe, but uh, there are definitely some complexities involved here, including for a country uh, with the modern history of South Korea. Dr. Irving, we are going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate your expertise. That's my pleasure. That was Dr. James Irving from London School of Economics discussing the various separatist and independence movements around the world still going on today on this March 1st Independence Day here in Korea. We've got Seoul City News up next.